My name is Burns Brady, and I'm an alcoholic. For uh, You know you're in good shape when your own home group tells you the truth. I don't like it, but I don't have many other places to go, so I'm really happy to be here with someone who will tell me the truth. The, uh, the science of, of this disease has been undergoing a, a, a real revelation, certainly since the 1990s. A lot of things prior to that were projected. Uh, even going back to the 1938 edition published in 39 of the textbook of Alcoholics Anonymous when it talked extensively about the things about this disease scientifically that we've subsequently proved that young people would drink differently from older people, that women would be affected much more severely, much more quickly physically than men, the progression of this illness, and on and on and on, the irritable, restless discontent. In the 1990s, called the decade of the brain, and certainly the 2000s have appeared to be focused principally on the genetics of this illness and what we know with the human genome and the number of genes and the number of chromosomes, etc. It's a really exciting time scientifically. In that 1990s decade of the brain, what was revealed to us was the dopamine serotonin systems and very uh, significant relief as far as what the etiology or one of the principal cornerstones of addiction uh, have turned out to be. Since that time, certainly in the last 10 years, we have begun to realize that the brain's own marijuana, the, uh, just like it has its own opium and it has its own stimulant system and whatnot, it certainly has its own marijuana system. And this has become to be a player of significance as far as satiation, uh, enough, uh, not enough, and many other things that it's showing us rapidly and really rewarding and understanding uh, what that 12-step message is. And the first part of that message is you have an illness, uh, a truly physical, mental, and emotional illness that we've come to know has a spiritual solution. But to not know the science would be to deny the fact that this is an illness. Uh, we do some really crazy things, drinking and some crazy things sober. But there's a part of the reason behind that that makes the, uh, the necessity to take responsibility for recovery even more prevalent because we're playing a court loan, we're playing in a tornado, and we're playing in a hurricane that's just beating us to death and no one has ever thought for the longest time that this was really something that needed to be dealt with in multiple ways. We've chosen who I think are, uh, is the most eminent, really the most eminent educator on this disease in the area of uh, the neuropharmacology, and certainly now his interest is in the endocannabinoid system, or the brain's own marijuana. Uh, Randy's a good friend. I've known him for a significant period of time. Most of you who have ever been here before know Randy. You keep asking us to bring him back. He keeps learning more and more, and that makes him a real eligible candidate to do it. So it looks like the audience and the man once again meet and Randy will be addressing the endogenous cannabinoid system. I won't go through his credentials. They're printed in the handout or they're printed in the program. So, Randy, come up and do your magic. Good to have you. I want to thank everyone for bringing me back this year. You know, um, last week I celebrated uh, my AA anniversary. And 27 years ago I was waking up in treatment, you know, full of shame, guilt, uh, just, you know, totally demoralized and a physical wreck trying to figure out how this happened to such a smart guy like me. Because while I was waking up, I was also a published author in the field of the serotonin system. 
Now, back then, we didn't really know that. We didn't know all the interconnections that were involved. But one of the beautiful things in my own personal recovery was finding out that I came by this honestly and naturally. Yes, there were things I did that were shameful and needed restitution and all of that, but I honestly came by it quite naturally, just the same way that a kid gets an itch or a runny nose, you know? Maybe life is all natural, but then so is diarrhea, and I don't want it. So there are things that we can do things about, and there are things that we can't do something about. So one of the beauties of my professional life is to be able to translate what we know as rather esoteric knowledge into usable information that we can help to heal lives that have been broken. That's the reason I enjoy coming back to Captasa, because I know that we have in this room quite a collection of folks who really know how to practice the principles in their clinical practice and really restore lives. So hopefully today, out of some of the information I've gathered over the past year, you can make a difference in somebody's life. So let me go ahead and figure out where we are on this, and we'll go ahead and start the ball rolling. I think this is mine. It is? And the magic number is F5. All right. Now, the endocannabinoid system, it's not just about weed. Uh, endocannabinoid tells us something very specific. It says it's inside, and it's made out of canna uh, cannabis. Now, most of us, when we think about cannabis, are thinking immediately about brownies. But let's talk about something here. What is weed? All right? Now, I'm sure if you have a 14-year-old, you can go ask this question and get all the answers you need. Now, I pull this answer from the Americans for Safe Access, which is a medical marijuana advocacy group. So let's see, hear what the proponents tell us what weed is. It's a compound which has about 483 different identifiable chemical constituents, okay, in one leaf or plant. Now, of those constituents, 66 are cannabinoids, which are what we consider to be the psychoactive thing that we're thinking about, 66. But in truth, out of these 483 individual, you know, you put the stuff in a Cuisinart, you ground it up, grind it up, and you send it to the lab, and you come out with 483 compounds. 256 of them are psychoactive. Now, they may not be present in large quantities or large proportions, but they're all in the same package. Now, of those constituents, there are also, once you get out of the area of the uh, 66 cannabinoids, there are amino acids, proteins, glycoproteins, enzymes, sugars. My God, it doesn't sound any more 
dangerous than maybe a, some breakfast food, correct? I mean, you've all read package labeling. But it also has simple alcohols, aldehydes, ketones, flavonoids, and phenols. Okay? The other word for these are carcinogens. It's all natural. Okay? It's all natural. This is what's in the plant. 66 cannabinoids in various proportions and distributions, 256 psychoact potentially psychoactive chemicals, such as some of these alcohols and ketones, and carcinogens. So that's what weed is. Now, I don't smoke kudzu. No. I have been known to plant it on a neighbor's yard that I was angry with. Okay. Okay. Now, are there differences in weeds? We've talked about the 66 different cannabinoids. Well, if you talk to a 14-year-old, they will tell you there are differences in weeds. Okay, now just two major differences. They're cannabis indica and cannabis sativa. How many of you knew about that? How many of you have talked to your drug dealer about that? Okay. How many of you talked to your 14-year-old about that? All right. Indica has cannabidiol, CBD. Sativa has THC. Now, this is the brownie stuff. Okay. Now, CBD has a sedative effect, producing a more relaxing, sleepy type of effect. And according to extensive anecdotal evidence, and this is one of the problems with the whole field of endocannabinoids, is that there's a whole lot of anecdotal and not a whole lot of evidence base. Um, they are more effective in treating ailments, including anxiety, pain, nausea, appetite, stimulation, sleep, muscle spasms, tremors. Okay, we'll get into why our legislatures are paying attention to this later. Sativa on the other hand, it has a higher THC content, giving you a cerebral, energetic, and soaring effect. What they also don't tell you is when you combine that with that, you get a psychotic break. But I'm going to leave that for one of our other speakers to talk about. So again, marijuana and marijuana are not the same marijuanas. It depends on your grower. It depends on the strain. And an important thing to make uh, to comment on now, because uh, I remember Burns and I got into this discussion in England in 2002, uh, because I had just come from working in a level one med trauma sy system where he was talking about it as being a fairly relatively mild sedating drug, and I had been intubating people that had overdosed on it. And the difference is in the 60s, the content of marijuana that was on the street was about 2 to 3% uh, active ingredients that we think about, the THC and the CBD. Today, better living through agriculture and chemistry, it's up to about 25 to 30% active ingredient. So this is no longer a benign, all-natural, growing out in the woods stuff. This is pretty potent stuff. And if you wonder who the biggest 
folks were in California that were opponents of the recent legislation to legalize marijuana there, it was the growers. It was the growers because they knew that if it went legal, the price was going to fall. So, yeah, there are big differences in weed. But the problem is, is you don't know that by looking at the plant. Now, how does this work? Now, for those of you that are about to run out of the room because you say, I saw this slide four years ago, I saw it last year, damn it, he's bringing it back again. Why is he doing this to me? It's real simple. It's a good slide. It's a good article. It's from... Uh, Cami et al. from uh, 2003 in New England Journal of Medicine, which is still one of the best reviews I've ever seen on the neurochemistry of addiction. But once again, if you have problems with insomnia, this will help you, okay? Uh, it is a tough article to read. But one picture is worth a thousand words, and what it shows us here is how the neurotransmitter systems go into the nucleus accumbens and the ventral tegmental areas, which are our aha centers, okay, where we really feel good, okay. So when our drugs work, they affect neurotransmitter systems that ultimately impinge on these reward centers and tell us we like this stuff or we don't like this stuff. And that's, the, that's how we get addicted. That's how we get reinforced and all that. And we know that for the serotonin system that mediates phencyclidine and uh, several other drugs and the antidepressant, that there are defined pathways. And for the opioids, there are defined pathways that impinge on this. And for the GABA pathways, which mediate alcohol, benzodiazepines, and uh, barbiturates, there are defined pathways just like there are road systems in interstate systems and railway systems that define point A to point B. So that we know how these systems work. But we don't see in here any cannabinoid system, do we? We see them talk about cannabinoids acting through this, but we don't see neurons that connect from point A to point B to point C, do we? Okay. We don't see that if I stimulate A, it has an effect at B, resulting in C reaction. This is what, why, I'm, why this whole endocannabinoid system is so important. So just a quick review. Let's go back and pick a system. Let's say the dopamine system here. So here you have a, uh, a neuronal body which goes down to, sends down a neuronal axon and it has a synapse that goes on to the cell body of that one. All right, we're going to take our microscope down. And here's that synapse where the presynaptic goes to the postsynaptic. And basically inside you have a neurotransmitter. And when point A gets stimulated, it releases a neurotransmitter that diffuses across here and has an effect on the postsynaptic membrane. All right? And that's either inhibitory or excitatory. A plus B equals C, or A plus B gives you Z. Somehow or another, you have a summation of activity. 
and that's called excitation or inhibition. Sum it up and you either are animated or you're taking a nap. Interact those systems, it's kind of algebraic. And once again, if we go down, again, let me take this back again. We're going to look at this part of the membrane here. This membrane here has different channels and receptors can can upregulate and they can downregulate and there's machinery under here that can modify the activity of all of this. So you can have modulation of activity. So these are classic terms that we use in neurobiology to describe this. But it's always based on if I take chemical A, it causes a reaction in neuron B, which sends a signal to neuron C that results in activity D, correct? That, that's how we think about the neurotransmitter systems. And if you sum it up with the serotonergic systems, you have de depression or relief of depression. If you talk about the dopamine system, you have reward or lack of reward. But it doesn't behave that way in the endocannabinoid system. And this is something we really didn't know 20 years ago. What happens in the neurotransmitter system that's so remarkable about the endocannabinoid system is remember how we think about things going A to B in that direction? Well, what happens is in that underpinning in your brain, in the postsynaptic area, in the machinery under your postsynaptic membrane, there is a system in place to regulate how active that membrane can become. And when it becomes overactive, it has a defense. So, again, here using the example of acetylcholine, we have the presynaptic area with release causing the effect on the postsynaptic. If the postsynaptic is overdriven, compounds synthesize down here and get released and feed back and inhibit the presynaptic so it slows down. Okay, and this isn't transmitter specific, meaning like acetylcholine. It exists broadly across the brain in all neurotransmitter systems and in all postsynaptic systems. And this is the endocannabinoid system. I was trying to find an example of, you know, from real life, well, this is real life, but I mean from my practical daily life that exemplifies this. It's really lousy weather out there today. You're driving along. You're driving along thinking about something else, and all of a sudden, in front of you, you see everybody stop and you're going about 45 miles an hour, and you hit the brakes. Okay, now, your car starts to slow down. You keep your foot on the brake. I've got good balance, don't I? Anyway, what happens as you're going down there is you've got uniform pressure on your brake. You're holding the steering wheel, but very subtly inside the mechanism of your braking system, there is a feedback mechanism that's called an anti-locking braking system. 
that's taking the pressure off. Very subtly reduce it so that your brakes don't lock up. Okay? Instead, you come down to a nice, smooth stop instead of spinning out of control. This is what the endocannabinoid system does for us physiologically. Because remember, we have the serotonin system, you have the acetylcholine system, you've got the dopamine system, you've got the GABA system, you've got the glutamate system. You've got all these systems, and they're all impinging on this postsynaptic membrane. And at times they get overdriven. Well, the way the body physiologically regulates all that overstimulation in a moment-to-moment activation and deactivation is using this endocannabinoid system which says, okay, I've had enough for the moment, and slows it down again, bringing it back into a slow glide. So it's a perfectly natural, physiological, homeostatic regulatory system. And it's nonspecific for serotonin, acetylcholine, everywhere. It's a physiological maintenance system across the entire brain. Whoa. Wow. And and is it per- and is it just for us? No. Well, I'm going to let, let's put this in a different context. Okay. This is Burns Brady. Okay, now we know Burns has a brain most days, and it works, and it gets stimulated, and it gets inhibited, and all of that. But what has he got in common with a toadfish? Now, a toadfish is exactly what it is. It's a toadfish that lives at about 5,000 feet underwater. It's been around for well over 100 million years. And even Burns can't claim that. Okay? And quite the only real difference, I mean, the only things they've really got in common is this one lives in water and this one wants to walk on it. All right? That's about it. You know, that's about it. But the important thing is, is this, this animal here has an endocannabinoid system. So why has this, or, this animal got an endocannabinoid system? because it needs it to survive. Marijuana does not grow at 5,000 feet below sea level in the water. But it has an endocannabinoid system. So our thinking about the endocannabinoid system is that the endocannabinoid system does not solely exist to subserve our need to smoke marijuana because you can't smoke marijuana at 5,000 feet below, sea, below the water. And the only place that cannabis exists is above ground. And so, when we think of marijuana, it's simply, in the biology of the world, a minor sideshow. It's just what it is. It's a weed. So what is the function of the endocannabinoid system beyond what I've talked about? Here's what it is. It's what I just told you. It's an endogenous physiological system. 
and it's transiently activated to help restore the normal steady state. And only when we abuse the system do we push steady state and normal out the window. And it has actually two components. It has the CB1, which is classically uh, thought of as the marijuana uh, activated system, which is mostly in the central nervous system, although it is found in the periphery, meaning outside the central nervous system. And we've recently discovered CB2 receptors, which are very much out in the periphery and in the immune system. And there are two endogenous uh, endocannabinoids that exist in our brain and our body, and that's called anandamide, AEA, and 2AG, which they haven't figured out a good name for yet. And they affect a number of physiological processes that are necessary for our, uh, for our life. Uh, feeding behavior, antinociception, motor control, memory and learning, immune and inflammatory responses, and neuroprotection. If you wanted to sum up all the effects, it's relax, eat, sleep, forget, and protect. Okay, very basic homeostatic needs. And where do we find them? Certainly in the brain and the hypothalamus, very, very much related to food intakes. And if you block these, you decrease food intake. Uh, in adipose tissue, where again, if you block it, uh, you get uh, decreased lipogenesis, meaning decreased fat production. It exists in muscle, where it regulates glucose intake and lipogenesis in the liver, and exists in the GI tract and pancreas, which relates to satiety and insulin secretion. Which, when most of us jokingly think of marijuana, we think of the munchies. Right. And so one of the primary roles of the endocannabinoid system outside of its effects in the brain system is on metabolic regulation. And again, if we screw with that, we know what happens. So the summary of the basic endocannabinoid biology is it's overactivated in human obesity uh, and stimulation centrally and peripherally favor metabolic processes that lead to weight gain, lipogenesis, insulin resistance, dyslipidemia, and impaired glucose homeostasis. The endocannabinoid system is inherently necessary for us to function as metabolic human beings. And when we mess with it, we get real goofed up. You say, why didn't I know this when I went through, and you fill in medical school, graduate school, counseling school, whatever? It's because this is all pretty recent knowledge. It started in 1964 with the isolation of delta 9 THC as being the active uh, ingredient associated with cannabis, or the first active ingredient, the first of 66 cannabinoids. And then in 1992, which is actually fairly recently, I started medical school in 1993 and they weren't teaching this. Okay. So that was when we discovered that the brain had its own marijuana agonist 
anandamide, which is the CB1 stimulant that causes that backflow and inhibition. Okay, so 1992, and only in 1991 did they uh, clone the receptor, and in 1993 found out that there was a, a second one, the uh, 2AG. And all of this is in the handout. But you say, what was driving this? What was driving this discovery? Why didn't we know about it? Two things. Two things. What was going on in 1964? Huh? For, and Vietnam War, right? Yeah. And all of a sudden we were discovering this you know, wonderful chemical that was coming in from Asia and a lot of pot smoking. So the Department of Defense was really interested in what was going on here. So, you know, this, this is a product of the Vietnam War. You know, this is a product of the 60s. We needed to know what was going on. Now, why all of this stuff in the 90s? Come on, folks, why? What's the big epidemic in the 90s? Obesity. Okay. So we were beginning to find out the roles of the endocannabinoid system in homeostatic regulation. And so the drug companies got interested in this and said, man, we got an obesity epidemic, we got diabetes going out of control, what can we do here? So we start asking the questions, are there valid medical uses for endocannabinoid drugs? I didn't say marijuana. I said endocannabinoid drugs that affect the CB1, the CB2 receptors that either, uh, in either block or stimulate release of anandamide or 2-AG. Okay, we're not talking about marijuana here. We're talking about drugs that, that affect the endocannabinoid system. Well, this has been an interesting story in itself. And part of the reason I'm able to talk about this with some degree of expertise is I am also somewhat of, of, of a wonk in the field of venous thromboembolism um, and have research projects in that area. And one of the drug companies involved in venous thromboembolism is the maker of Lovenox, uh, which is Sanofi Aventis. Sanofi Aventis also has a metabolic division that was looking at glycemic control drugs and weight control drugs. And they came up with some interesting uh, stuff. And so they were driving part of this. And because I was working on the anticoagulation side, I had some access to to their information on the endocannabinoid system. And we'll talk about that in a moment. So, you know, drug, you know, big pharma gets a bad rap sometimes for what it does. But on the other hand, it drives information gathering that, that we can use uh, later on. Uh, the first drug that most of us think about, because no one back, back in the 80s and the 90s was comfortable with marijuana. So the FDA approved a derivative drug of marijuana called Marinol. How many of you know about Marinol? Okay, great. How many of you have ever prescribed it? Okay. 
How many of you have ever seen good results with it? Okay, number, number of hands go down. Okay. Basically, the story about that is, is pretty simple. Marinol is manufactured as a capsule containing THC, one of the 66 cannabinoids, tetrahydrocannabinol, delta-9 THC, in sesame oil, and it's taken uh, orally. And this is from actually one of the pro websites, Medical Marijuana, uh, medicalmarijuanaprocon.org. And what they, what their take on it when they looked at patients that were on it is first of all, looking at the bioavailability of it, it's very, very insoluble. That's why it's in sesame oil not water or something easily digested. And it results in very poor bioavailability with a high first-pass metabolism, which means you take it, your stomach absorbs it, it first goes through the liver, and then what gets to the rest of your body is what's left after going through the liver. So only about 10 to 20% of any oral dose actually get to the end point of having an effect in the systemic circulation. And the onset of action is slow from two to four hours. So it's, the good news is it's not particularly highly reinforcing. But two, it's extremely long in arriving at any systemic effect. And because of this poor solubility and high first-pass metabolism, you actually have to take large quantities of it to get any effect in the systemic circulation. With, and when you start having to take large quantities, you start pushing the therapeutic index in a different direction to where your, your therapeutic effect is minimal and your adverse side effect profile goes very high. And those are events associated with the central nervous system, such as anxiety, confusion, depersonalization, dizziness, euphoria, dysphoria, somnolence, and thinking abnormalities. So even though it does have an systemic effect at the end organ level, it also pushes the adverse side effect profile pretty high. And so it's not even particularly well tolerated. And again, there was a marvelous study. Marv and I heard this presented at ASAM in 2004, where what they did is that they created an IV solution of this stuff, of, Delta, uh, of THC, and, and a bunch of guys down in the uh, uh, Greenwich Village got enrolled a bunch of old potheads into a program where they could come into a room and smoke as much pot as they wanted all day long. This was a institutional review, review board approved study funded through your tax dollars. But it was a very, very important study because it, 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 it defined something. What they did is they looked at these guys through a one-way mirror all day long and measured their smoking activity while they had an IV running. They could watch TV, they could you know, play crossword puzzles, they could do anything. And periodically during the day as these guys were token up, they would 
add some THC to the IV solution that was running in their veins. And they'd watch them stop smoking. And then they'd run the dose a little bit higher, and then they'd run the dose a little bit lower. And they'd start smoking again. You know, and then they'd run it a little bit higher, and they'd stop smoking, you know, play with them across. And they'd drop it again, and they'd start token up again. And what they found was that at a serum concentration level of THC going directly into the vein with the systemic effect, avoiding all of this, to get the equivalent dose of Marinol, you would have to give 30 to 60 milligrams of Marinol. Okay? All of you pull out your PDAs right now, okay, and start looking at what the approved FDA uh, dosing are for Marinol. And it's somewhere between 2 and 6 milligrams. So in a patient that's already tolerant to their endocannabinoid system is already tolerant to either real marijuana or Marinol, two to six milligrams isn't cutting it. It takes 30 milligrams minimal to have an effect on these patients. And so a cancer patient that's having you know, prolonged therapy and prolonged use of this stuff, the federally approved Marinol dose is, not, is a homeopathic dose and therefore it's not effective. And when you push it to the 30 milligram level in this format, you start getting an adverse side effect profile. So it's really kind of a crappy drug. It's a nice try, and it's a good try on a naive user, but on a patient that really has genuine need for this, or an old pothead, it ain't gonna work. Okay, so let's talk about Romanabot, which was marketed in this country as a complia for about three months. <laughs> okay. More a uh, longer period of time in Europe. Romanabont blocks the endocannabinoid system. It just flat blocks it. And here, here's the example. All right, anandamide is that CB1 endogenous endocannabinoid. And of course, this is the ubiquitous control. Okay, that's why it's in green and that's why it's at zero. Okay, <laughs> your control. We're talking about food intake here, okay? And this is, of course, done in a lab rat, not in a happy McDonald's customer. All right, so this is baseline. And you squirt some anandamide, which is your endogenous marijuana, into the brain, and look at what happens to feeding activity. Go sky high. Yum, 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 yum. Okay. Same thing if you smoke marijuana. Okay, look what happens if you give Romanabont back down to control level. Romanabont completely blocked feeding stimulated by endo the endocannabinoid system. Wow! That has tremendous potential, said Sanofi Aventus. And look, here's the England Journal that looked at 20 milligrams of Romanabon in real human patients. Look what happened to their change in body weight. They dropped about 10 pounds. Look what happened to their weight circumference. They dropped about 10 centimeters. Look what happened to their triglyceride levels. They dropped 
by about 20 points. Look what happened to their HDL cholesterol, which is the good one. It went up about 15 points. My God, the cardiologist loved it. The diabetologist loved it. The patients loved it. Except, remember, it blocks all those receptors in the brain. Those same receptors that are involved in mood. And so the only thing that can be said ultimately good about this when they pulled it from the market is when the people hit the ground after committing suicide by throwing themselves off of tall buildings because of their drug-induced depressions, they didn't make as big a splat on the sidewalk. So this was pulled because both in Europe and in the U.S., a large number, there were large, large numbers of people that had problems with this drug. So the bottom line is it was a wonderful drug in many respects for both glycemic control and cardiological issues and weight control. But uh, it was too broad and active uh, chemical within the brain. Uh, it also improved tobacco cessation and blocked inhibition produced by alcohol in the amygdala projections, resulting in remarkably decreased alcohol intake. So originally, as a drug, this was marvelous. It, you, you got thinner, your cardiac markers improved, your glycemic control improved, you quit drinking and you quit smoking, but you also quit living sometimes. Steve Jurd, uh, who's one of our colleagues in Australia, uh, participated in these clinical studies on the drug, and he says, it was wonderful. They quit smoking, they quit drinking, and they started twitching. Uh, only an Australian would say it that way. But, you know, this, I have maintained contact with Sanofi Aventis. They potentially have some drugs in the offing that are offshoots of Romanabon, but they're nowhere near ready to, to come into human clinical trials uh, at this point or, or any usefulness. And again, the story that we learned about blocking the endocannabinoid system is that there are profound uh, psychiatric effects uh, if, not, uh, if not monitored carefully. But interestingly, the CNR gene that expresses your cannabinoid receptors in the brain. You know, in, in some of these lab rats, they can breed the rats without the genes. They can do what are called knockout mice, and they can, like, eliminate the gene for your hair and eliminate the gene for your blue eyes or whatever. Well, they can also eliminate the gene or block the gene in such a way that you don't express the cannabinoid receptors. And when they do that, they reduce, it, it actually uh, blocks cocaine dependence and IV drug use. And you're saying, in a rat? Yeah, they can train those little things to self-administer. Yeah. So there is a correlation between modulation of the CNR gene and direct IV drug use, which is associated with reinforcing activities and specifically cocaine dependence. And if you stimulate or block the endocannabinoid systems, as we know from these studies, 
it modulates the GABA, the glutamate, and the dopamine systems. So once again, what's important here is this is the alcohol barbiturate and benzodiazepine pathways, and this is the cocaine pencyclidine reward pathways. And so the endocannabinoid system becomes sort of like a sticky glue across our brain that really holds the whole business of addiction all in one big basket. Because for one of the most frustrating things for us as addictionologists over years is really explaining cross-dependence. You know, I remember in treatment when they would look at me and they say, now Randy, you're an alcoholic, but you're going to go back and live in Miami after treatment and you better watch it because there's a lot of cocaine on the streets there. And I'm going, I've never had a problem with cocaine before. Well, you might in the future. Well, where did they get this? Well, at that time, 20 years ago, they were basing it on suspicions and anecdotal evidence. And now we understand through the endocannabinoid system how all these systems are tied together. Because remember, let's go back to that basic physiology that we talked about a few minutes ago. The endocannabinoid system is a homeostatic regulatory system that exists across the entire brain, helping self-regulate all the neurotransmitter systems. So it doesn't matter whether it's alcohol, nicotine, cocaine, marijuana. It all ties together through the dopamine reward system and the endocannabinoid system. So a drug is a drug is a drug, is the answer to that question. So again, if you knock out CB1 receptors, again in mice, these poor little mice that have had schizophrenia induced with PCP, it blocks their social withdrawal. So we know the endocannabinoid system is involved in, social, in some of our social activities. Chronic stimulation, and this is a beneficial thing, of uh, the CB2 receptors in the liver actually causes improvement in fibrosis caused in cirrhosis. So this is a potential area of really solid medical research for, uh, for cirrhosis because if you can isolate this effect, then you can, uh, you can improve the uh, fibrosis found uh, in terminal liver damage. Interestingly, when we look at um, why do some people racially uh, have problems with alcohol more or less than others, there's a polymorphism uh, in, the, in the CB2 gene that results, that is unique to Japanese alcoholics and to uh, Japanese uh, people experiencing depression. So we know that modifications in this system you know, can have very, very specific uh, effects uh, racially and, uh, and uh, genetically. CB2 and pain. One of the big uses for medical marijuana is thought to be related to pain. But it's not a CB1 effect. It's a CB2 effect. And there's a drug in the pipeline that stimulates the CB2 system that inhibits pain without producing those dysmorphic CNS effects that we associate with morphine. Um, so the CB2 system, this 2-AG peripheral 
system and the CB2 system within the brain, not the one associated with the woohoo effect, modulates acute pain, chronic inflammatory pain, post-surgical pain, cancer pain, and pain associated with nerve injury. And this may be where uh, patients with fibromyalgia um, that uh, claim that marijuana helps them, they may actually anecdotally have, uh, there may be some truth in the woodpile there. Uh, so this brings us to a question, are there valid medical uses for marijuana? Okay, medical marijuana, is it valid? Well, apparently some states think so. Because 14 of them have legalized medical marijuana. This looks like the Democratic map of uh, the last presidential election. Uh, I happen to be a registered Democrat, so I can say that without, with impunity. Uh, I happen to live in one of those states that recently has um, gotten very much involved in medical marijuana. And so I'm going to sort of put my tongue in cheek and we're going to talk about this for a second because I think it's an educational point for all of us. Uh, it's real whether we agree with it or not. It's out there. Um, in New Mexico, and these slides were provided to me by the New Mexico Department of Health from uh, our own program, the purpose of the act, and it's a compassionate use act for Lynn and Aaron. There's a story there. The purpose of the act was to allow the beneficial use of cannabis in a regulated system for alleviating symptoms caused by debilitating medical conditions and their medical treatments. Lynn and Aaron were two patients that were very well connected with legislators. One had terminal MS and the other one had wasting cancer with anorexia and were not getting the relief that they needed and um, went to their friends who pushed it through the legislature and said, these people are at the end of the stage and they need to have relief. And so the New Mexico legislature put through an act that created a system that allows marijuana to be either grown by a patient or distributed to a patient. I said the legislature. So this is how the program got set up. Please notice that the Medical Advisory Board is lateralized here. It is a direct legislative statute that registers eligible patients and also regulates the production and distribution. <clears throat> this puts the state of New Mexico in direct conflict with the federal government. Creates an interesting uh, thing. For instance, Colorado has a medical marijuana program. New Mexico has a medical marijuana program. But if you, as a patient enrolled in the New Mexico program, go to the airport to fly on a nonstop to Denver, Colorado, and TSA finds marijuana in your luggage going through, because you're just doing carry-on because it's a local flight, you're arrested under federal statute. Whoa. Or if you get caught in Colorado with marijuana, issued in New Mexico, but you're not registered in the Colorado program, you're, you have a misdemeanor, fel, a misdemeanor felony plus a, a charge of interstate trafficking. So these programs are, don't connect well. Secondly, it's set up under the harm reduction portion of the uh, 
same area of the infectious disease section of the state government. And you can only get it if you've got these conditions. Now, the interesting thing is, okay, let's find a lot of these are pretty terminal conditions. We'll allow anybody anything in a terminal state. But if you look at the first part of the, study, the program, it started in July 2000. And here we go two years later uh, into March and May of 2009. Less than 300 patients got enrolled in this. So you had a whole legislative thing, a whole bureaucracy created for 300 patients. Why did it take off? They added PTSD to the list. Okay, so I'm just going to quickly go through. You too can become a licensed nonprofit provider in the state of New Mexico. Um, you can have either a personal production license or you can be a distributor. Uh, the program, please, is not a legal cover for those who wish to use for non-medical or mixed purposes. PTSD? Okay. Um, what does provider certification mean? It's not a prescription for cannabis. You go to your doctor and your doctor certifies that you have reached the end of the rope on all known medical treatments and you're still refractory. Then you start filling out the paperwork. It's that long. And then if you have any one of these conditions, you have to have a subspecialist sub-certify. And then finally, you, it, the thing goes to the state, and then you get a little card that says you can go negotiate for the price. Why would anybody want to do this? They can get it from a 14-year-old in the corner. Uh, and the problem is, is we now have a solution to our recession. Our state legislature is now applying a 7% gross receipts tax to the production revenue which is indistinguishable from our tobacco and alcohol taxes. And in a time when state governments are all in deficit spending, we know that our medical marijuana program will never go away because it's a revenue producer. It's as addictive. It's totally addictive to the state. And it's about as medically scientific as chewing chincona bark in order to get the anti-malarial effect of quinine. All right? So my point on this is medical marijuana programs do a disservice to their patients by providing a mix of drugs, you know, 66, 256, how many God, God knows toxins and all that, that are, that are not regulated and there are no standards other than the weed grew. Okay, and the politics distract from potentially valid medical uses for endocannabinoid agonists and antagonists by not funding research, especially on the CB2 system, which doesn't screw up your brain, but does have good effects on the GI system and uh, the pain systems. And potentially valid uses are trumped by the known addictive properties associated with the CB1 system. So it's really not a clean picture. Medical marijuana is not clean by any means, but the endocannabinoid system is essential to us. So, that's my story. I'm sticking to it. If nothing else, you now understand the munchies, and I thank you. <laughs> All right.